Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox. In this programme, we're exploring wonder in the company of science writer Caspar Henderson, author of A New Map of Wonder. One reviewer called the book Astounding, Mind-Bogglingly, Unimaginably Wonderful. 20th century physicist Richard Feynman described his interest in science matter-of-factly as simply to find out more about the world. But Caspar Henderson repeatedly shows that wonder has been a frequent stimulant or accompaniment to that impulse to find out more. A marvelling at the complexity or simplicity, the intricacy or interrelatedness of the natural world, its laws and ourselves. Centuries before Feynman, for example, Johannes Kepler wrote, Perception belongs not to optics, but to the study of the wonderful. Henderson shows that scientific knowledge does not exhaust wonder or dispel it. It operates its own kind of enchantment, born of greater understanding. Some of his wonders are cosmic in scale, but it's not a book of grandiose superlatives. Henderson agrees with the current astronomer royal, Martin Rees, who said that even the smallest insect is far more complex than a star. When I met Casper a few years ago to talk about his previous book, he told me it had had its origins in a dream he had by the riverbank in Oxford. So I was naturally curious to hear what had set him on his quest for wonders this time. One part of its genesis was a very simple, mundane event that's described in the beginning of the book, and that was that I came down into the kitchen in my house and there was a patch of sunlight on the wall dappled sunlight in a place I didn't remember having seen it before and I was just astonished and delighted by this in a you know it's only a patch of light on the wall but somehow at that moment I seemed to connect with it in a very intense way and it made me it prompted my mind to go in various directions and pull different emotions and thoughts together in a in a very intense way that I describe as wonder was that an epiphany? Is that, is, that, is that too strong? You had a sort of moment, a flash of insight, and you saw in a patch of sunlight the potential to explore this, this theme of wonder. I guess that's true. I mean, it, it was a very mundane, everyday kind of thing. Everybody's seen a patch of light on a wall. Perhaps I just happened to be in the right frame of mind. And I'd been thinking around the ideas, and I'd been wanting to express something that I couldn't quite pin down. And somehow that patch of light felt like a pretext 
for what in some sense I feel is a fairly ludicrous project. Ludicrous perhaps both in the sense we conventionally use it, you know, a little bit ridiculous, but also a playful project about the theme of wonder. I mean, what a ridiculous thing to write a book about wonder, this nebulous, strange, extraordinary state. Because you could have chosen simply to write a book about light, say. Yes, and there is a chapter about light, of course, and it's in some parts quite heavy on the science of light. But I think I've said this in places in the book, the the science itself is, I find, delightful and fascinating. But the point of the book is not to just explore and describe scientific phenomena. It's to to use them as, or to be present and aware of them, as a way of focusing attention. And I like to say the science is something like a koan. It's like a portal to a state of attention and what Henry David Thoreau called sympathy with intelligence to the world around us. And wonder doesn't stand in opposition to knowledge and science, but wonder is a sort of, how would you describe a sort of preliminary state or a a necessary prior state to engaging and going deeper and and, and reaching some kind of explanation of, of the cause of the wonder? Wonder means different things to different people, but I think it is a very... Well, behind the word is a very potent and fertile group of experiences. It has something to do with curiosity, has something to do with perhaps a little bit of fear, uncertainty, but it has also a lot to do with joy. I just like to describe it as a state of radical openness and attention to the world. Of course, we have to bear in mind it's like all our language and all our conversations, it's historically and culturally situated. But I do think if you look back in the written record, you know, one can identify, say in Shakespeare, for example, the way he uses the word wonder seems to be very, very modern in the sense I don't think it's changed. I think there's something very real there, which we can still access and we still experience in similar ways, even though, of course, we've had since Shakespeare, the scientific revolution and, and you know, the growth of knowledge of all kinds, which leads people to question whether does uh, cold philosophy unweave the rainbow to slightly misquote Keats, you know, does knowledge somehow kill wonder? I think we can see that that state of wonder, that experience, continues in a way that we can identify at least over several hundred years and maybe much, much longer than that. You're clearly taken by the stories of, you know, just talking about the rainbow. For example, a monk lying on the grass trying to to capture the angle of the light and work out how the, the rainbow works. And to you, that's not the absence of wonder. Wonder. It's not the antithesis of wonder. That's sort of, that's really wonder in action. It's that, that sort of playful, that sort of intrigued and intriguing, tilting something to try and see how it actually works. Yes, I mean it's a delightful image. I think it's Theodoric of Freiburg, and it's one of those interesting cases of um, simultaneity. There was a, also a, a Muslim. We call him now, I guess, a natural scientist, but I feel like a natural philosopher at the same time doing these kinds of playful experiments. And Theodoric is there, You can he, he describes him lying in the grass, looking at dewdrops, moving his head slightly to see the prismatic effect as the sun is. And that's like a little child. It's not an irritable reaching after fact, again, to go back to Keats. You know, it's, uh, it's an openness and a joyful willingness to be in a place of uncertainty and curiosity. Awareness that maybe there's something very important here, that there's something at least was worthy of attention. I think these are often the most meaningful experiences we have, or perhaps that's the wrong way to phrase it or frame it. There can be experiences which 
give us a basis for constructing our sense of meaning and purpose. You know, they are ways in which we connect and ground ourselves to the world around us and our place in it and from which we can build meaning. I asked Casper if wonder existed on the same continuum as awe. I think one can make a case that it is a distinct kind of state, or at least it's not the same as, although it might overlap in important ways. But typically, for example, when people talk about awe, um, it's an experience of strong emotion in the presence of something large and um, perhaps even terrifying, perhaps beautiful, but if you look back in some of the older texts we have, such as the Book of Job or the Bhagavad Gita, you've got awe before the Godhead. or the, And that's, there's a, a large amount of fear involved in that, uh, often. But we use the word awe in everyday life. That's, that's awesome. You know, this has now, in some sense, become a, a, a trivialized or trivial expression. I, but I think wonder has a real role as, as a, a way of describing something that's not the same as awe, that has more joy, more surprise, more, and it's also has an intellectual component to it. And we are ready to think and engage intellectually as well as feeling very strongly. We're also cognitively engaged. Of course, one of the figures that comes up in this kind of discussion is Descartes and his his identification of wonder as the first of the passions and primary, you know, the cool passion, the one that makes us think. I don't think that he has it entirely right in that kind of taxonomy, but there is something important there that I think when we're in the state of wonder, we're not just overwhelmed by emotion. We're also present intellectually or, or potent- we have the sense that it's important to engage and think as well. And you, you structure around seven different wonders. Yep, that, it's a way of giving a structure to the book. Seven wonders is a very familiar trope but I thought I'd take seven natural wonders, and I tried to also relate them to each other through this principle I describe in the introduction, maybe familiar to some, the idea of emergence, whereby if you, in some occasions, when you put two relatively simple things together, something new and surprising emerges. You get new properties, uh, behaviours that nobody could have predicted from the parts, and the world seems to be built like this. So relatively simple things such as... um, Atoms of hydrogen and oxygen come together and make water, which has properties that you couldn't predict from the properties of the individual atoms. And this work, so each wonder is more complex in some sense and emerges in some sense from the from the wonder beneath it on this kind of seven seven layered mastaba, I suppose. <laughs> and was there any point, Casper, after you'd got the contract to write this book, where you thought, "My God, what have, what have I what have I agreed to? What have I undertaken? So many fields of human knowledge to." explore to get yourself I'm presuming some of them would were relatively new to you and get yourself up to date and then work out what you thought about it and and then construct a, an elegant essay on it uh yes I, I mean I thought often what the, what on earth have I done to get myself into this you know I had some some credibility because the previous book I did people liked it and the publisher believed I could do it but then I actually was faced the reality of trying to do it and it was it, it, it was difficult I mean many people may know that feeling of good difficulty as a, you know some things are difficult in a way that's just tiresome repelling and and wearisome and uh, frightening but we also experience good difficulty in our lives sometimes where you know you've got a problem that you actually really want to engage with and mostly I felt it was I was in a state of good difficulty but it was very hard to do um, and 
to, to write about areas where I wasn't a specialist. So, for example, the, the third chapter is on the human heart. And that was actually, in some respects, quite a delightful chapter to research and to write, because even though the heart is extremely complex and there's still much that's not known about the heart, it's at least quite simple compared to the subject of the fourth chapter, which is the human brain. And, uh, you know, it's a highly dynamic field of research. It's vast and complex and uh, it's hard to write well about it. All the more, if you, and, you know, if what claim can one make as a non-specialist? I tried hard to get it right and to ground what I was doing in, in thorough research. And I felt if I could help the reader to get to square one or two on the board, you know, even if there are the 64 squares of the chessboard or or maybe many more than those at least if we're on square one or square two or we get from even just getting onto square one is a, is a good you know to learn a bit more open a little bit more is, is a worthwhile task at least for some people some of those who read it and you're not simply writing about the state of current knowledge so when it comes to the sun you're not sort of summarizing the current state of scientific understanding of of the sun and how it behaves you're also looking at the whole hi- history the whole cultural history of human beings' understanding of the sun and response to the sun. And you're bringing in literature and you're bringing in music. And so it's a very rich mixture. It's much, much more than just a summary of, of scientific knowledge at the present date. Well, thank you. Yes, no, that, that is the, the aim or the hope. Um, so, for example, writing about well, the understanding of the sun, how it's changed over time. And there's vast amounts I didn't write about. There's a, I can think of at least... Well, I can think of one right now, but there's probably several very good books about the sun running to five, seven hundred pages. Um, and I would write, I had 10 or 20 pages. But I think maybe like poetry, if you point to the right detail or the right image, sometimes, and including when I was looking at how people have dreamed and imagined and thought about the sun, that that pointing in the right direction can go quite a long way to opening a door or a a thought about how we think about the sun, even if it doesn't give the full detail of the of you know what the Mayans believed about the sun or something. And I, I just enjoy also weaving in some often there's some quite densely woven allusions to poetry or music into the text, because I don't know about you, George, but when I've talked to scientists, not always, but often they're very emotional people, and they that's very present for them, just as it is to people who are used to you know reading and writing and talking in relation to the humanities and that language that we have and the um the cultural references we have from from the arts are very relevant to how we engage and think and pay attention to something like this one i like the fact that you you describe writing to friends and asking them to recommend things which are sources of wonder but you stipulate they must be easily accessible and they must be inexpensive or free because I can imagine people coming up with all sorts of grandiose suggestions which would actually be very difficult to access and very costly. So what kind of things did you find coming back from your friends? Uh, When the book was announced I got a phone call from a Norwegian documentary film company and they person said oh we hear you're writing a new map of wonders and we you know we'd love to follow you on your travels around the world to all the extraordinary places you'll doubtless be visiting and I had to explain that you know I didn't have a budget to travel at all so it was uh I've been in a shed pretty much the whole time you went to Hereford you went to East Anglia you you, you got around yeah so so I did I did get around within the UK but I mean there, I think there was a you know there's this idea that uh, it would be a you know, down to the deepest canyons and the, you know, the loftiest mountaintops. Yeah, you know, to uh, and to, um, who knows, extraordinary caves full of jewels or something. I mean, you know, this kind of... But yes, I, I did get around a little in, in Britain. 
so I asked various friends, you know, where could I go? What could I see to what wonders are relatively cheap or freely available? I think the one that struck me most is one I mentioned in the beginning of chapter four, which was to go and see a murmuration of knots on the coast of East Anglia. Now, you better explain what a murmuration of knots is. I wouldn't have known before I read the book. Okay, well, knots in this case, spelt K-N-O-T-S, they're a kind of seabird. They're a, a wader, a stocky wader. And um, the red knots have beautiful colouring. They're a little bit red underneath and silvery white on their on their backs. People may have heard of a murmuration of starlings. That's perhaps the most common one. And that's one. it's one of these... It's like a living cloud of birds. The birds all move and turn in in unison and create an extraordinary effect. They look like an organism in the sky, a kind of a cloud, a black cloud that's alive and moving. And the red knots will do this too. But among the differences, and in a sense added features and wonders, is that when they turn, uh, because of the differential colouring between the two sides, they seem to appear and disappear in the air as they move. And so that was that was a suggestion. In fact, when I went to see that, the thing that surprised me and made me feel most full of wonder was the sound that the birds made as they came over uh, my head. The, the, the flapping of thousands of pairs of wings simultaneously, but all slightly different, all slightly offset, making this mass, mass sound together filled me with a very strong, I had a very strong emotional reaction to that. And, and I, I gather I'm if I didn't coin this word, I, it's, no, it's not a usual word. I talked about the oraculous, the sense of something, the wonder of the ear marvellous, the, the wonder of sound, which can be as great as the wonder of what we see sometimes. Because we do, as creatures, we do tend to privilege the visual, don't we? But there are wonders which may go, go past us uh, and appeal to other senses. Yes, indeed. We, we uh, use a very large proportion of our brain to process vision. And we, you know, it's extraordinary trick that the brain does to give us this impression that we can see the world and of course we do see the world although very selectively all our senses of course are extraordinary but because we live in such a visual culture we do neglect or underprivilege the what we get from our ears and uh, I, that's something that came home to me that the in the course of researching and writing the book that uh, these other ways of experiencing wonder these other sensual paths to wonder are very important too and indeed, one of the things I learned from the book is that perhaps thinking in terms of five senses is a bit limited and, and limiting. There are other ways to think about our being in the world. Yes, we tend to, if people are asked what your senses are, they'll tend to say, you know, it's a, obviously sight, hearing, touch, smell and taste. But uh, we have we have others. Um, one that perhaps is people will be aware of, but they may not know the name is proprioception. And that's the sense of where our body is in relation to both itself and um, and the space around us. And the classic test of this is if you close your eyes, unless you have a severe, well, a serious neurological condition, if you close your eyes, uh, you can put your finger on the tip of your nose without uh, needing to know where to put it. Uh, I did exactly that as I read that page in the book. I imagine 98% of readers probably did too. Yeah, it's, it, it's just one of those ways which you can, oh, wow, there's something I don't usually think about about my body here. And there are, there are others. Um, in that same chapter, I write a little bit about the vestibular sense. That's what gives us a sense of what's up and down and, and balance. And is it, you know, basically without it, we'd be, we'd be helpless. We wouldn't be able to move around. We wouldn't be able to stand up. We wouldn't be able to walk. 
and we don't think about it. And it depends on these three tiny circular canals in our inner ears with sensitive hairs and actually tiny little stones in them which um, move and uh, we sense their movement. It's one of the ways in which we ground ourselves in the world. We just don't think about it, but it is a sense. You write that the fact that the human brain is the most complex thing in the cosmos is oft-repeated and perhaps too oft-repeated, but it's still fascinating and it's still astonishing, isn't it? What a wonder we are. Yes, it, I mean, it is something maybe approaching a cliche that the brain is the most complex thing in the universe apart from the universe itself. It's such a big truth, if it is, or apparent truth as far as we can tell, that it's easy, it's easy to overlook just how big it is and what that statement holds within it. You know, we're familiar with the idea that there are, I think, around 86 billion neurons in the brain, in the human brain, and, and then trillions and trillions of connections. But we don't know how, we don't know some very basic things about, about how the brain works. We don't know, you know, we know a few things about how memory works. And, but there are lots of very important aspects of how the brain functions we don't really understand. I say we, the neuroscientists, the leading, many of the leading neuroscientists will say, we don't really know what a thought is. So there's a huge extraordinary mystery there this it, i had appropriated this word hyperobject from the literary theorist and critic timothy morton he coined this term hyperobject to describe realities which are so big we can't really see them but nevertheless in uh, shape our lives and so i think he talks about the half-life of plutonium and climate change but in some sense, we've got a hyperobject in our head, this thing that's so extraordinary. You know, we, this mushy goo, this 1,200 cubic centimetres of mushy goo, it's kind of the brain, it's, it's almost fluid. And we just don't think about it very much, most of us, most of the time. And even those who do understand very little about it. You talked at the beginning, I think, about sort of examining our place in the cosmos. And that question, I guess, becomes especially pertinent when we begin to think about things like artificial intelligence and and technology and how much the world around us is changing and how much it may change in the next 20, 30 years, what it means to be human and how we find purpose and what the sources of wonder are. If writing about the past and the present are complex, how did you begin to, to think about where we may be heading? There's so much written about technology and you know, the kinds of futures it might bring. So, of course, in recent years, that seems particularly to have re- related to artificial intelligence and robotics. And I wanted to say something again, you know, this project was a little ludicrous. And how on earth do you say anything sensible in a relatively limited space? I started writing about many areas. I wrote and re- well, I researched and started to write about biotechnology synthetic biology and, and and other topics too but in the end I just thought I'll have to just choose a few three in this case areas of, of uh, technological research and change and I picked space information technology and energy technology I have written in the past I used to be something I worked on quite a bit of relating to energy technology and climate change so and I think it's one you know, we can see the, uh, I think we're increasingly aware of, of course, of the downsides of methods of energy generation from fossil fuels. <laughs> but we, we're also aware there's something of a revolution going on. And it doesn't look entirely impossible or implausible that there could be 
a less bad future, at least in terms of energy generation and its impact on the planet than there has been in the past. It really could be the case we have a, a solar energy revolution and, and abundant energy could be available to everybody for virtually nothing and at low to approaching zero environmental impact. That It's not a completely ridiculous idea. There's some optimism there. Often discussions around artificial intelligence and robotics, you know, they, at least in the popular press and, and uh, TV and elsewhere, you know, they, you know, on the internet, they tend to run very quickly to extremes. We still have this kind of, I don't know, Frankenstein-associated disorder. And yet, you know, it's clear that uh, much of the leading edge investment, of course, is for weapon systems and systems of surveillance and control. I mean, when has that not been the case in human technology? So I, I just tried to approach a few topics and try to find some sources of hope and resign myself to the fact that whatever I wrote would be in some se- some respects out of date pretty quickly. But when it comes to artificial intelligence, would it be fair to say that you think that the danger of robots taking over is less than the danger of artificial intelligence being used to um, further exaggerate inequalities in, in, in human society. Yes, I think all the signs at present are that these technologies, artificial intelligence and related technologies, are used either for, you know, with, by corporations with a view to maximising profit or by states, militaries and maybe criminals to control I'm not an anarchist in the sense I don't believe there should be a state, but there can be good ways in which the technologies can be used. But nevertheless, states will use them to control. I don't think, and this partly relates to what I said about the human brain and our lack of understanding, I think it's very unlikely that artificial general intelligence will take over the world anytime soon. It should be said that many researchers in the field think that AGI, artificial general intelligence, will be a reality before the end of the century, perhaps well before the end of the century. But I think it's still some way way off, and I think there are many questions and battles before that happens. The last time we spoke, I, I think my final question to you was where you stand on the optimism-pessimism spectrum about our future and our, our custodianship of the planet. You said 51% optimism. Then. Did I? <laughs> Maybe a more interesting question would be, if that had shifted, would you be willing to admit it on, on record? Uh, this week, I'm feeling 51% pessimistic. I was just reading a, a description of a book called Carbon Ideologies by William Volman, who's very pessimistic about humanity's ability to get its act together on the question of climate change. And I think there are other you know other environmental concerns I mean I guess maybe I'm a typical environmentalist and the sky is always falling down but I think there's a lot to be very deeply concerned about there but we don't know and even if it's the case that things are looking bad I think this has been put well I think by Kate Marvel a climate scientist in the states the important thing is maybe more than hope the important thing is courage and I'd like to think that if this book cheers people up that then helps them to find some courage and do you think the capacity of wonder is going to be severely tested in the in the years to come? I think it's always being tested. I mean, every I think every generation and every lifetime. I mean, uh, you know, as we get older, we our own mortality becomes more apparent to us. 
by and large, that's true. I certainly experienced that in my case. And uh, I would hope that I could uh, mention I had this illusion I might get wiser. I hope I can maybe approach more kind of, for want of a better label, a Buddhist approach to that, you know, acceptance of the, that I'm just a wave in. But nevertheless, there's, uh, you know, there is fear and dread. And uh, so one can feel wonder maybe ebbing away at times in one's own life. And when one sees some of this emboldened stupidity and, and cruelty and, and the rest of it in the world, you know, it can it can certainly put the dampers on wonder. There's lots of ways in which wonder can be shut down and closed closed down. But there also are endless sources of delight and energy and joy if we only pay attention. And so I hope I'm reminding people of a few of those in this book. I was talking to Caspar Henderson about his recent book, A New Map of Wonders. It's published by Grant Books in the UK and Chicago University Press in the US. You can find out more about it on their websites. If you've enjoyed this programme, do visit thehedgehogandthefox.com for other interviews in this series. You can subscribe to the programme wherever you get your podcasts. And you can catch up on any interviews you've missed, and, if you feel so inclined, even leave a review. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Supply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.